This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome all cardio nerds to our next episode in the Critical Care Series. We've covered a lot so far here on the Schulman Ward in the Cardio Nerds Medical Center, including hemodynamics, LV and RV predominant shock, ECMO, and so much more. But one of the best parts of working in the critical care setting is working with friends in different fields to help patients. And today's topic, the cardiorenal syndrome, requires the ultimate collaboration. Now, contrary to what you see on Twitter, nephrologists and cardiologists are not the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's not Hamilton versus Burr. It's not the Lakers versus Celtics or deep dish pizza versus New York pizza. But we actually get along and approach cardiorenal disease with complementary perspectives. So to get us started, I'd like to introduce friend of the podcast, Dr. Matt Delfiner, cardiology fellow at Temple University Hospital. He'll walk us through some cases that illustrate how you cannot fully understand the heart if you ignore the kidneys. Matt is a second-year fellow at Temple University Hospital, where he also did residency. He has a clinical and research interest in heart failure, mechanical circulatory support, critical care cardiology, and echocardiography. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Mark, and thank you to the Cardio Nerds for having me back on the podcast. Throughout my residency and fellowship, I've not only seen a great number of patients with both cardiac and renal disease, but I've seen a frequent misunderstanding of the relationship between the heart and the kidneys. The objective of today's episode is to understand how the heart and kidneys are so connected and what we can do to help patients with the so-called cardiorenal syndrome. But we can't do it alone though. We'll need the help of not just one, but two experts. Since this is the cardiorenal syndrome, we have invited cardiologist, Dr. Elliot Miller and a nephrologist, Dr. Nayan Aurora to teach us for this episode. Wow. First of all, Matt, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being the ambassador for Temple. Again, for the folks, we have this amazing Healy Honor Roll program, and Matt is representing Temple University and doing such a great job at it. But now I get to introduce Dr. Miller, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and associate medical director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Yale New Haven Hospital. He completed his internal medicine training at Johns Hopkins Hospital, critical care fellowship at the NIH, and then cardiology fellowship at Yale. Furthermore, he completed a two-year National Clinical Scholars Program Research Fellowship at Yale and has quickly become a national leader, and I should say international leader, in delivering cardiac critical care. But most importantly to me, Dr. Miller was the first attending I had ever worked with in the role of a supervising resident way back in 2015 on the Broncotti service at Johns Hopkins. He was so incredibly approachable, supportive, and sprinkled me with just the right amount of oversight and autonomy, but also guidance, which really set me up for success as I continued my years of internal medicine and cardiology training. So welcome, 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 Dr. Miller. It has been a long time coming. Dan, I really appreciate it. And you don't want any praise yourself, and I'm sure you can just edit this out, but can't tell you how proud I am of you and Amit for starting Cardio Nerds. I have very vivid memories of rounding with you and Brancati and as a SAR teaching Amit about the sensitivity of the lung exam and chronic heart failure. So I knew that you guys were just destined for greatness. So appreciate the invitation and looking forward to this and also very thankful that Dr. Aurora is on, on this 
podcast. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. We will not be editing that out because I will accept your kind words on behalf of the whole Cardinals family, which is really, truly a huge, huge conglomerate of people just, just so excited about teaching cardiovascular medicine and learning about cardiovascular medicine and taking care of our wonderful patients. So you did mention Dr. Aurora. So it is my honor and pleasure to also welcome back Dr. Nayan Aurora to the CardiNerds podcast. Dr. Aurora is a clinical assistant professor of medicine and nephrologist at the University of Washington Medical Center, where he also completed his internal medicine residency, chief residency, and nephrology fellowship. Dr. Aurora has been an early adopter of digital medical education and a frequent collaborator with CardiNerds through Nephrology Social Media Collaborative. And really, he has helped us do so many other projects, but has been really a great mentor in this space. So welcome back, Dr. Aurora. We are so pumped and jazzed to see the nephrology side of things in critical care. This is going to be such an important episode. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you guys for the invite. Part of me still is wondering if I'm being punked as the only nephrologist surrounded by cardiologists. And you could tell by the length of the intros between myself and Dr. Miller, who's doing the heavy lifting. So I'm happy that he's here collaborating on this, but really looking forward to getting started. You know, Dr. Aurora, cardiologists tend to travel in packs and we don't like to be isolated with nephrologists because we know we'll be outsmarted. <laughs> I'm really excited to hit the Tillman wards to learn from both of you. For our audience, we're going to be focusing on the cardiorenal syndrome and acute kidney injury in the critical care setting on this episode. But please refer back to episode 153 with Drs. Anjali Wagle, Nick Smith, and Nisha Galotra for discussion about diuretic resistance. And episode 154 with Drs. Michael Falker and Matthew Spark covering diuretic strategies in hospitalized patients. So Matt, why don't you get us started here? So anyone that rounds in the CICU knows that acute kidney injury is common, with some studies reporting it occurred in 25 to 50% of patients, and they have higher associated short and long-term mortality. But there is a subset of patients that develop AKI that have what seems like a nebulous term, the cardiorenal syndrome. Before we get started, Dr. Miller, could you answer one simple question for us? What is cardiorenal syndrome? It's a good question. It comes up all the time in rounds. And, you know, I just like to make it as simple as possible. It's just the interaction between the heart and kidneys and how dysfunction in one may drive dysfunction in, in another. So there's five types. The first, I think, is acute heart failure causing acute kidney injury. Type two is chronic heart failure causing chronic kidney disease. Three is acute kidney injury causing acute heart failure. Four is chronic kidney disease causing chronic heart failure. And then five is kind of a co-development of the two, um, usually driven by systemic disorders like sepsis. But that's how I try and break it down. Thanks, Dr. Miller. There are different types of cardiorenal syndrome. Uh, Dr. Ruro, what are the key pathophysiologic differences between the different subtypes? And broadly, why is it important to differentiate the subtypes when it comes to management? Yeah, so I actually don't know that it's that important to differentiate between them when you're managing patients. The whole concept of these five subtypes of cardiorenal syndrome that Dr. Miller mentioned is, as he said, there's an acute and chronic phase of both heart dysfunction causing kidney dysfunction and kidney dysfunction causing heart dysfunction. You could actually name probably classes three and four kidney heart syndrome instead of cardiorenal syndrome. And then type five is something comes in, knocks them both out and you have, you know, dual organ failure. And in terms of what we're talking about here with patients in the CCU or frankly in the hospital, you're really dealing with that first type. 
So something happens to the heart and it causes kidney issues. And more than knowing which type is which, I think this really highlights the bi-directional interaction between the two and really shows that you can have kidney issues that will ultimately manifest in cardiac issues. So I don't know that it's super vital to distinguish between them because really what it comes down to me when I'm looking at these cases in the hospital as a nephrologist is are the kidneys getting perfused and are you achieving adequate decongestion and really it can be simplified as that. You can look at these charts that show things like neurohumoral activation, super important, endothelial dysfunction, you know, all kinds of things that impact both of these organs. But really, if you boil it down and distill it down to two things, it's perfusion and decongestion. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Aurora. These come up on the boards and they'll come up on rounds for educational reasons, but I very rarely will say this is type two and we're going to treat this differently than X. So clinically not always super useful, but certainly worth knowing. And that's really super helpful to understand that clinically we approach it in one way, but we want to think about it in the other subtypes because it gives us an understanding of what's going on. As you both have described, there is a significant overlap between the different subtypes of CRS and defining the underlying pathology can inform targeted treatments for patients. So before we head into the Shulman Ward, Dr. Aurora, can you quickly define AKI for our audience? So we are all on the same nephron, <laughs> I mean, um, page. Yeah, so AKI, so, you know, this is, uh, it's actually a, a much better question than you think, right? You know, it's a field. AKI has undergone different permutations of what the definition is, but essentially you can go to the Kidigo definition of AKI, which really comes in multiple stages. And again, how useful these are clinically is up for debate. But really what it is, is stage one is you have a creatinine that's 1.5 to 1.9 times the baseline or greater than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter. Stage two is two to 2.9 times baseline. And stage three is three times baseline or an increase in serum creatinine to greater than four or initiation of renal replacement therapy. And acknowledging that creatinine is a poor biomarker, particularly in patients with heart failure, there is a urine output. Uh, specification for each stage. So stage one is less than 0.5 mils per keg per hour for six to 12 hours, less than 0.5 for greater than 12 hours of stage two, less than 0.3 mils per keg per hour for greater than 24 hours, or anuria for greater than 12 hours is stage three. I just can't believe you didn't like my nephron dad joke. <laughs> Matt, we better get started with the case. <laughs> this is crazy. We have a 50-year-old man with hypertension who presents with three weeks of progressively worsening shortness of breath and swelling in his legs. He has no chest discomfort with exertion or at rest. He has no other comorbidities, and he takes amlodipine 10 milligrams a day. In the emergency department, his blood pressure is 155 over 90. His heart rate is 90 beats per minute, and respiratory rate is 24 breaths per minute and labored. His oxygen saturation is 85% on room air, improves with initiation of buyback. His physical exam demonstrates bilateral crackles on his lungs, jugular venous pressure up to 15 centimeters of water, and a positive hepatojugular reflex. No murmurs or gallops, and he has two-plus pitting edema to his thighs bilaterally. Chest x-ray shows pulmonary vascular congestion, and his labs show a BUN40 and a creatinine of 2.0 with no acidosis or hyperkalemia. His BNP is 3,000, and he has a normal troponin I. Six months ago, on routine blood work by his primary doctor, his creatinine was 0.8. An echo was done in the ED and showed an LVEF of 50%, borderline global hypokinesis, no significant valvular disease, grade 2 diastolic dysfunction, moderately elevated RV systolic pressure, and mildly dilated RV. 
He's brought to the CICU for IV diuresis and bypass. Dr. Miller, we've talked about some basics of an initial diuretic strategy in the podcast before. What would your strategy be for this patient in the critical care setting? Does the presumed subtype of CRS affect your diuretic strategy? And are there any specific pearls for initial diuresis our audience should know? Yeah, great question. And and like I was saying earlier, I don't think that I would treat this patient differently based on which CRS bucket they fall into. But the key here really is to prevent this patient from getting intubated. We know that once a patient's intubated in the cardiac ICU, their mortality goes through the roof. So they're already on BiPAP. And the key will be to decongest this patient as quickly as possible. And there's a bunch of different ways that I think you can go about this. First, it sounds like the patient is diuretic naive. Their creatinine is two. So some people would say that you could give around 40 of IV Lasix would be reasonable. If they were on Lasix at home, say they were on 40 PO at home, generally I'll multiply that by 2.5. So give a dose somewhere between 80 and 120 IV for the first. And the key is really not to just give a dose and then check back in several hours. You want to check back in one to two hours. And if it's not an effective dose, if they're not making 200 plus cc's of urine, you want to redose. And the, and the key there is to double it. You know, the dose response curve for diuretics is sinusoidal. So it's a log of the diuretic dose that you gave. So if you gave 40 and they didn't respond, you would want to give 80. The 40 IV Lasix that I said at the beginning, some people would say that's kind of underdoing it. Beauty of diuretics is that if the person is overloaded, you're not going to hurt them with giving too much or overshooting. The patient's not going to diurese faster. They're just going to diurese longer. So that's at least initially how I would uh, approach this patient. That's very helpful, Dr. Miller, and specifically the logarithmic idea of the increasing diuretic dose. I have people to think about, especially for those first diuretic doses that are given often overnight by the admitting team. Dr. Aurora, I know in my experience, oftentimes the creatinine will initially get worse when I diurese the patient. What does worsening renal function mean for prognosis, and how do you adjust your subsequent management if it does go up when you first diurese them? Right. So this is uh, something that's really been reevaluated more recently. And there used to be this almost battle in the literature, right? And nephrologists used to call it AKI and cardiologists used to call it worsening renal failure, or worsening renal function, I should say. And, you know, it turns out in, in this instance, at least the cardiologists were right. And it does look like this rise in creatinine that you might see, which has now been dubbed permissive hypercreatinemia, is actually, you know, associated with and portends improved outcomes. We have to be careful how we talk about that. You know, we've been accustomed to starting things like ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers and seeing this 20 to 30% rise in creatinine and being comfortable with it. This is going back to med school and fellowship and residency where this is hammered into us, but it wasn't as common with diuretics. In fact, I remember training and the old adage was you diurese them until you see their creatinine bump and then you back off and you stop and you discharge them home, which turns out was probably not the right thing to do. In this particular case, you know, I may actually expect the creatinine to get better. It looks like they already have a established AKI. We won't get that too much now, but assuming this is cardiorenal physiology, kind of a type one cardiorenal syndrome, that with decongestion, that creatinine would actually get better. Now, when creatinines rise, we know from a post hoc analysis of things like the ESCAPE trial and the DOSE trial that those patients actually do better and actually similar to patients that achieve appropriate decongestion without worsening renal function or quote unquote AKI by creatinine criteria. 
I don't want people to go out and say I can ignore a creatinine and somebody comes in with a creatinine of one and I diarrhea some to creatinine of six and they say, well, I listened to that cardio nerds episode and that guy was like, well, it doesn't matter. It portends better outcomes. There's probably a ceiling there. I can't say we know exactly what that is. In my practice, I'll tolerate a 30 to 50% rise. And if you look at the studies that were done on this, there was a concurrent increase in things like hemoglobin and total protein and albumin. Because if you look at creatinine, it's a concentration, just like anything else you're measuring commonly here, it's going to be milligrams per deciliter. And what's likely happening is you're changing your blood volume with effective decongestion. And so with that, you get a, you know, some rise in creatinine. You have to be careful because if you have worsening renal function or AKI in the absence of decongestion, those patients do markedly worse. But these small increases in creatinine, somewhere in the 30 to 50% range, I think we have to change our attitude towards it and not freak out over these small fluctuations. So, you know, this patient is typical of so many hospital admissions and emblematic of an acute cardiorenal syndrome. This concept of worsening renal failure with diuresis suggesting a good prognosis can be easily lost upon when we are only looking at lab values. And Dr. Rory, you talked about looking at the full lab picture and not just what the creatinine is. Now, much of the debate between cardiologists and nephrologists comes down to this maddeningly simple question, though not so simple. What's the patient's volume status? We've talked about exam and right heart catheterization, hemodynamics, and assessing volume on the podcast. But I'm interested in both of your opinions on the role of POCUS and tools like the VEXA score, other scores or assessments of volume status by ultrasound in assessing for congestion in CICU patients. Maybe we can start with you, Dr. Miller. Yeah, I use POCUS quite a bit in my practice. You know, it's something that's not frequently taught in cardiology beyond just the cardiac exam, but I frequently use it for uh, a lung exam looking for B-lines. And then at least teaching wise, I love to do the physical exam and then correlate it with an IVC exam on ultrasound. So I would say I use it pretty frequently. And just like the JVP, I don't let one test or one exam finding sway me, but it adds to the whole picture. You know, Dr. Aurora, what, what's the nephrologist's opinion of utilizing POCUS? And I know you run a kidney heart service, you being the nephrologist at the University of Washington. What's the role of POCUS on your practice? So we do utilize bedside ultrasound. Uh, similar to Dr. Miller, we are looking at B-lines, potentially ultrasounding for a jugular venous pressure. I do use the VEXIS exam or the VEXIS score, but just like has already been mentioned, this is one tool. I would never use this as the sole indicator of a patient's volume status and determine management based on one thing alone, but I do find it to be a helpful tool. I think we have to acknowledge that things like the VEXA scan haven't really been validated in the majority of these populations. And so I think we have to be careful in how much we rely on something like that. But in our own practice, we found it to be a helpful tool and we are actually studying it at the moment. And that would be remiss to not mention, you know, a lot of times what we're utilizing on echocardiography or a POCUS at the bedside, we're measuring pressure when we know pressure is not always a surrogate for volume. Hey, Matt, why don't you uh, tell us about our next patient? Our next patient is a med four, 63-year-old woman with known dilated cardiomyopathy, LVEF of 20% with a primary prevention ICD, CKD stage 3A, who presents with orthopnea, dyspnea on exertion, and lower extremity edema in the context of running out of her home furosemide. She typically takes oral furosemide 40 milligrams twice a day, in addition to septuagint valve sarcan, spironolactone, and propylol succinate. 
arrived to the hospital, her blood pressure is 180 over 100. Her heart rate is 90 beats per minute. Respiratory rate is 22 respirations per minute. And she has an oxygen saturation of 93% on six liters of nasal cannula. She is clearly hypervolemic on physical exam, imaging, and she is elevated NT pro BNP. Her creatinine is 3.0 from her baseline around 2, and her sodium is 130. Her inpatient team decides to diurese with 80 milligrams IV furosemide. However, she only makes 150 cc's of urine over the next three hours. For the next dose, they give 120 IV furosemide, but still she's not making much urine. Her blood pressure remains the same, and she has no evidence of end organ failure aside from her creatinine and pulmonary edema. We have a few questions for this case. First, before discussing diuretic strategies, Dr. Miller, would you hold her renin-angiotensin inhibition medications like the spironolactone and the valsartan in the setting of her elevated creatinine? What circumstances would you hold the RAS inhibition? Great question. Um, this comes up every single day. And before I answer it, I'll just make a plug for doubling that diuretic dose. You know, obviously they didn't listen to the first part of our podcast. For some reason, that 80 to 160 seems to be a, uh, a mental block for a lot of folks that I see. But as far as going to your question, I definitely would hold the Ace Arbor Arnie in the setting of acute kidney injury. It's not going to help you in the acute setting, and it could definitely hurt. For the sprenolactone, that's a little trickier. If the creatinine is high enough at this point where I would hold it, and I usually use the threshold um, that they used in the clinical trials. I think Rails was the sprenolactone and Emphasis was the Implerinone trial. I, they used the creatinine of 2 for women and 2.5 for men. Um, so in that setting, I would hold both for this patient. I, I know you guys brought us here for disagreements and it's all been agreeing so far. I'm not so sure we should have a reflex of just holding ACE inhibitors or ARBs. I could be totally wrong, right? We're in a data-free zone. We have no idea what's the right thing to do or not. And I know we're conditioned to have this reflex of you see AKI and you hold it. We know from observational studies that patients do worse in the long term. Now, this is observational data where these meds aren't restarted in at least 90 days post-hospitalization. It comes with all the caveats of observational data where patients may be sicker. We don't know the rationale for discontinuation. Uh, my own practice, and maybe I can just lead with that, is I typically hold these meds if a patient is hypotensive or hyperkalemic. And I know you didn't give us the potassium here, particularly until we can assure that this patient is diuresing effectively, which obviously with the meds we use will tend to cause more hypokalemia. But those are really the indications where it needs to be held. Other than that, I'm not so sure it's the right thing to do to automatically hold them, particularly in somebody who's this hypertensive. You know, Dr. Rohr, those are good points. And I think if you asked 100 cardiologists, 100 nephrologists, you might get slightly different answers. The most important thing that you mentioned there was if you do hold them, you have to make sure that you attempt to get them on before discharge. There's really good data, as you mentioned, that if you're not started as an inpatient very frequently, they won't be started as an outpatient. And you're right, kind of a data-free zone. My take is, especially in the cardiac ICU, that we have so many other medications that are not going to get in the way of the person's renal dysfunction that I just hold it. I take that variable out of the equation. Yeah, fair enough. And I think the ICU is a different place where you maybe don't want that med confounding your lab data, depending on various interventions and other things. So it's a totally, totally fair point.
Thank you both. That was great to hear both of those opinions on a very common situation that we see. And good to keep in mind that not only do we have to look at the creatinine, but again, obviously things like their blood pressure, their potassium in terms of deciding whether or not to continue or hold these home meds and definitely making sure to restart them before they leave the hospital if they are held. As we talked about the outset, we've discussed this concept of diuretic resistance on previous episodes. In this case, Dr. Rora, would you define this patient as being diuretic resistant? And are there any additional tests that would help you titrate treatment? I think the issue is diuretic resistance is such a subjective definition in general. People have tried to quantify this in some way, and whether that's uh, urine output per some degree of furosemide equivalent versus urine sodium or naturesis per furosemide equivalent. But one of the accepted definitions is failure to decongest despite adequate and escalating doses of diuretics. And oftentimes your guess is as good as mine. I completely agree with Dr. Miller that I use much higher doses of whatever loop diuretic you're using. I think here we tend to shy away from what sound like industrial doses. Actually, if you go to Europe, there's actually a 500 milligram furosemide tablet. So they think in different degrees potentially than we might. But I have no problem labeling this person as diuretic resistance given the data data that you provided. And so what does that mean, right? So, and what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, as was already mentioned, there's this sigmoidal curve with loop diuretics. And what you're trying to do is find your threshold dose. And what was already mentioned is that there's a ceiling dose, which kind of protects you as particularly somebody who's as volume overloaded as this patient is. So you don't need to be afraid of these high doses. Now, as a nephrologist, what I'm doing here is looking at everything that I can look at. So this patient has an acute kidney injury. I'm still doing my due diligence to make sure there's nothing else going on. Do they have tubular injury? Were they feeling bad and taking NSAIDs as an outpatient? Did somebody start them on a new medication and they have acute interstitial nephritis? Do they have a vasculitis from the hydralazine they're on, which is one of the reasons nephrologists hate hydralazine? Uh, so there could be other reasons for this patient to have acute kidney injury, which may make them more resistant to diuretics. In the absence of that, if we're saying this is cardiorenal syndrome or cardiorenal physiology, is there adequate perfusion? You know, looking at that blood pressure, it, it's, it's going to be hard to blame, uh, you know, perfusion in this case. Do they have a lot of ascites? We know that intra-abdominal hypertension has a greater impact on renal function than, say, cardiac output does which typically doesn't unless it gets really, really low. And then beyond that, I do utilize urine sodium levels. I think you pick a tool and you use it. And the point is to minimize time to decongestion. So it's not you give a diuretic, you come back six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours later and reassess. It has to be done within the next one, two, three hours at most. And what I do is I will check a spot urine sodium one to two hours after diuretics. If it's not at least 50, I'm going to either escalate the dose or utilize other things like sequential nephron blockade, which we may talk about later. And so I'm not waiting around more than a couple of two, three hours. Dr. Aurora, that was a, a wonderful breakdown of a very broad topic that has a lot of nuance in terms of management. And, you know, before we started this episode, we were all chatting about how diuretics have been around for a long time, but this is where a lot of the art of medicine comes into play. So Dr. Miller, you know, I want to turn it to you. In this patient that has had escalating doses of diuretics, when do you start thinking about adding sequential nephron blockade with additional diuretic strategy? That's a great question. So my practice pattern generally, once I get to 200 to 240 milligrams of IV furosemide, I'll switch to Bumex. And usually around that time is when I'll also add on a thiazide diuretic. In my training, and Dan probably remembers, we didn't use a lot of Bumex. It was almost all furosemide. And going to a different place for my cardiology training, 
the art of medicine, like you said, is a little bit different. So we use pretty enormous doses of Bumex here, 10 to 12.5 plus 10 of Pumatolazone. So that's generally my kind of practice pattern if someone's not responding to that 120 or 160 of IV Lasix. That was helpful. And then in addition, in, in what situations then do you think about, in addition to the Bumex and the thiazide diuretics, what do you think about adding other forms of sequential nephron blockade? You know, at that point, I've probably already had my intern page, Dr. Aurora, even if he's out of state. But if they're not responding to 10 Abumex and 10 Amatolazone in an hour or two, then I'm already kind of prepping that right IJ for a dialysis catheter. You know, there are a bunch of other things that you can add, but in someone that's acutely ill in the CICU, if their respiratory status is tenuous at all, I don't really do too much other than a thiazide and a loop and getting the, the neck ready for a dialysis catheter. But I know Dr. Aurora has a ton of experience here, so would love to hear his thoughts on different agents. Yeah. So to preface this, this is all going to be opinion based, right? Once you get to your high dose of loop diuretic defined as you want to define it, plus a thiazide, which we know is probably the most useful adjunctive therapy in terms of diuretic management. Now we're in a data free zone. Now we're deciding just based on experience and opinion what to do next. And one of the things that lead to diuretic resistance, particularly in heart failure patients, is this increased sodium avidity you get this nephron remodeling. And the reason we use thiazides preferentially is this hypertrophy of the distal convoluted tubule where you get increased sodium reabsorption. The other thing that you see a lot is because of the significant neurohumoral activation, you get a significant amount of reabsorption of sodium proximally. And you can actually increase the percentage of sodium that you filter that ends up being reabsorbed proximally up to about 80, 85% or so. And so what we typically do is we get called a lot if a patient's on a loop diuretic plus a thiazide, still not achieving adequate diuresis or naturesis. What we do is we have a low threshold to add something like acetazolamide. The data for this is limited from small studies out of Belgium. There is the ad for trial. We'll use SGLT2 inhibitors acutely at certain times just for that extra boost of naturesis. Those were shown to potentiate the naturetic effect of loop diuretics by about 20%. We will often use things like high doses of spironolactone. So you really need the 100 to 200 milligram doses to achieve better naturesis or a milleride if I want a quicker effect, something to really block the ENAC channels in your collecting duct. If I have a patient on all of those things, and this is pure cardiorenal physiology, we have used a lot of hypertonic saline as a method to potentially break diuretic resistance, and we've been relatively successful. And all of this is being done to try and avoid ultrafiltration, uh, which we know can be associated with worse outcomes. If all of that fails, then yes, there are patients that clearly need ultrafiltration, but we're doing all these things as a means to try to avoid doing that. Wonderful. That was incredibly helpful. And so despite being supposed sworn enemies, it seems we have found some common ground here in diuretic strategy, although still with some nuances and center-specific and physician-specific alterations that kind of really highlight as we've discussed kind of this continued art of medicine when it comes to diuretic therapy. We have learned so much about acute cardiorenal syndrome and chronic cardiorenal syndrome. What about patients that primarily have a renal disorder? Matt, do you have another case for us? Sure. We have a case that could help answer that question. In bed six is a 54-year-old gentleman with insulin-dependent diabetes and non-anuric end-stage renal disease on dialysis for the past three months, 
who presents one day of severe shortness of breath at rest, in addition to three days of worsening shortness of breath with exertion. His blood pressure is 210 over 120, heart rate is 110 beats per minute, and respiratory rate is 20. On exam, he has severe lower extremity edema up to his abdomen, and JVP is at least 15 centimeters of water. Chest x-ray shows bilateral pleural effusions and severe pulmonary vascular congestion. A bedside echo is performed that shows an EF of 60%. Eat ape ratio of 2.5 to 1, estimated PA systolic pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury, and a dilated IVC all consistent with hypervolemia. Dr. Aurora, is there a role here for diuresis in addition to volume removal with dialysis? There is. And in fact, patients do better, assuming they're not anuric, like you're alluding to with this patient, to keep them on diuretics. If they're on continuous renal replacement therapy, then I don't feel strongly. But as somebody who's getting traditional three times or potentially four times a week dialysis, or they're on peritoneal dialysis, then absolutely they should be on a diuretic. If you think about conventional hemodialysis, if you have a patient that's on a diuretic, which even increases their urine output by 200 cc's a day, that's 1,400 cc's a week. If you think about standard three times weekly dialysis, that's half a liter less you have to ultrafiltrate with each dialysis session, which helps avoid things like hypotension and myocardial stunning, and more importantly, keeps their volume status as appropriate as possible in between dialysis runs. Wow. Dr. Aurora, I didn't actually not appreciate that. Now that you kind of like painted that picture, I see that the drips can really add up. Now, his blood pressure will improve with aggressive volume removal, but Dr. Miller, what else is part of your strategy for severely elevated blood pressure management in these patients? Is there any benefit or harm from RAS inhibitors in these patients with ESRD, whether they have preserved or reduced EF? I think this question comes up so often, particularly when we're like, well, their kidneys aren't working. Are we even going to have the effect or the benefit of using a medication that has so much of an effect on the normal healthy kidney? Yeah, you're right, Dan. It comes up all the time. And, you know, for this patient in particular, the EF is 65%. There's no compelling reason in my mind to start RAS inhibition, especially not in the cardiac ICU. IV nitroglycerin would be my drug of choice here. You know, he's in some respiratory distress. This will drop your preload and this will get you a much better place. So I would not use RAS inhibition, especially in the acute setting here. Now, long-term, if the patient has reduced EF and you can confidently know that they're not going to get hyperkalemic as an outpatient, there might be a role for an ACE or an ARB, far less data for ARNI. But acute setting, Dan, I'm using IV nitroglycerin here. So this question gets asked to us a lot. So patients with end-stage renal disease, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, what parts of guideline-directed medical therapy are important in these patients? And it's important to point out that, like many other things we've talked about, in a data-free zone, we have very limited data in these patients who are very commonly excluded from clinical trials. The best evidence comes with beta blockers, particularly carvedilol, which has shown proven benefit when it comes to ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. I favor starting them, but this is purely borrowing from literature in patients with even advanced kidney disease who seem to benefit. As Dr. Miller mentioned, you really need to make sure that hyperkalemia isn't an issue. Even if somebody's anuric, you get changes in the gut, which can make people hyperkalemic. And you want to be careful with intradilytic hypotension, which is going to impact volume removal and maintenance of euvolemia, or at least some target weight. And so I still favor starting them as long as patients can tolerate it. 
Thank you, Dr. Or, uh, Dr. Miller. That is so helpful. We do have one more patient we need to see in bed 10, who is a 50-year-old woman with dilated cardiomyopathy and LVEF of 15%, CKD stage 2 and a baseline creatinine of 1.6, and is now presenting with dyspnea and fatigue. She takes Carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice a day, Dipagliflozin, 10 milligrams daily, Spironolactone, 25 milligrams daily, Sacubitril Valsartan, 24, 26 milligrams daily, and Bumetanide, 1 milligram twice a day. Her blood pressure is 85 over 60. Heart rate is 130 beats per minute. She's afebrile and breathing 28 breaths per minute. On exam, she's clearly hypervolemic and has cool extremities with weak peripheral pulses. Her creatinine is 3, and ECG shows atrial flutter. She started on IV bubetanide 2 milligrams three times per day. However, by the next day, she has no improvement clinically. And in fact, she's only been making 0.2 cc's per kg per hour of urine. We've covered management of cardiogenic shock throughout the series, but we want to know if in the setting of cardiogenic shock with acute renal failure, you have preference for or against certain vasoactive medications or mechanical support devices. For this case, honestly, the best thing would just be to get her out of atrial flutter. You'll be in much better shape if you can get her out of atrial flutter going 140. Specifically talking about the acute renal failures, as we often say, norepinephrine is probably king here. Given the arrhythmias, I'd avoid dopamine or dibutamine. If the EF is normal, this is a great case that you could use phenylephrine given the arrhythmia. And then as far as mechanical support, complete data-free zone, as we've been mentioning before, I'd probably favor a balloon pump first. Some of the percutaneous support devices that are newer make me nervous about adding in with renal failure. And it's also important to note that if you get to a point where you need to use ECMO with or without venting, that you can add in renal replacement into the circuit. So that would be my general approach as far as vasoactive meds or mechanical circulatory support. I agree. The, the precedence here is to correct or improve the arrhythmia. The other thing that is worth mentioning that we haven't yet, we, we've kind of made this case that cardiac output or cardiac index is not really associated with renal outcomes. That's true to an extent. There's good physiologic data that shows once you get below a cardiac index of about 1.7, your GFR really falls off a cliff and it can be hard to adequately treat patients beyond that. And so I'm not saying that you automatically change management when I see that, but it does pique my interest when I see a cardiac index under two if a patient's not responding the way I'd like to diuretics or other management. And the other point is one metric that we think about a lot day to day in the ICU is this whole concept of renal perfusion pressure. So the way really any organ is perfused, right, is the arterial to venous side. And the way we think about this is just looking at your MAP minus your central venous pressure. Your goal is going to be around 60 to 65 as a textbook goal. That being said, it's almost impossible to get patients there particularly in a CCU. So I like to target somewhere around 50. So what does that mean? We do have the patients where they're on, let's say, an inotrope. It improves their blood pressure, maybe not enough. They have really high right atrial pressures or central venous pressures, particularly the patients that have a preserved EF. And so whether that's your pulmonary hypertension patient who has right-sided failure or maybe your heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, we've had success using things like vasopressin to just give them that MAP boost. And the reason I like vasopressin, and again, this is all anecdotal, is because you get specific efferent vasoconstriction with vasopressin, and that's going to give you that GFR boost that may help decongest a patient. 
And then when it comes to mechanical devices, I will certainly defer to Dr. Miller and, and the rest of you. I will say that as a nephrologist, we usually loathe impellas because of the associated homolysis, although it does look like that maybe impella 5.5s might be a little better in that regard. And then the nice thing about ECMO is that you can just add in continuous renal replacement therapy to the circuit. Dr. Miller and Dr. Aurora, these cases, you have dissected them beautifully and really gave us a thorough discussion of the cardiorenal syndrome. And we really want to thank you both for that discussion. But before we close, we have one last question for the both of you. What makes your heart flutter about caring after the critic deal? Great question. You know, for me, this is the best job on the entire planet, specifically the cardiac ICU. And so, you know, it's just such an honor to take care of these patients and be there for them when they're, you know, at their neediest and sickest. So that's what really kind of drives me in, in this profession and, and working with folks like Dr. Aurora that are equally as devoted. Yeah. So as was mentioned before, we have this kidney heart or cardiorenal service and, and it's been just a pleasure to work closely with cardiologists and the amount I've learned from all of you and the folks at our hospital on a day-to-day -day basis is incredible. You really appreciate having this multidisciplinary approach to what are really the, the sickest patients in the hospital and having this collaborative effort to make them better gives you a lot of gratitude. One thing that I shockingly get enjoyment from is using different strategies to actually get people to pee. And if you follow me on Twitter, that's a lot of the pictures you see is screenshots of urine output with various things and concoctions that we've we've drawn up. I've seen some of those posts and they're incredibly helpful and educational, Dr. Arath. Thank you both again for coming on. There isn't a cardiologist or nephrologist out there who doesn't encounter patients like this seemingly on a daily basis. Thank you for the incredible teaching and thank you, Matt, for spearheading this episode. Cardio nerds, we discussed some of the indications for renal replacement therapy in the cardiac ICU on this episode, but we'll be going to more depth in an upcoming episode called Understanding CRRT in the CICU with Dr. Joel Tove and the rest of the Cardio Nerds cardiac critical care team. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was fun. Beep. Beep.